Thanks for tuning in to the Replatform podcast sponsored by Attraction Hypersonics. You're listening to the ungodly voice of me, James Gerd, and the silky patois of my co-host, Paul Rogers. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm interested in this because both you and our, our, our wonderful guest today are mildly broken off the back of NRF um, in the US, whereas I feel positively radiant in comparison. Top of the world. Yeah, yeah. we'll see how we get on. I got back in about four hours ago from the US, so yeah, hopefully I'll survive the episode. Good. So, dear listeners, we are going to break pool today. Um, and thanks for tuning back in. And if this is the first time on the podcast, thank you for giving us a chance. We hope you enjoy the content. Do subscribe to get new alerts. We drop them every week. And we'd love a like on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, um, Amazon, etc. Makes us feel better about our insecure and uh, tiny lives. So let's uh, let's introduce the topic and then I'll hand over to our guests. So interesting one, continuing our theme of, of really getting deep dives into some of the leading um, e-commerce vendors and technologies out on the platform. We're catching up with, with Commerce Tools. So Commerce Tools had a really interesting story over the past few years, um, been pushing very heavily in the enterprise space. Some really big brands uh, have been adopting it. Um, you know, it's part of um, the uh, the composable side of the, the um, commerce platforms, API-driven, um, you know, package business um, capabilities, a lot of flexibility suiting suiting different um, organizations who would you know go down the route of a, like a pre-packaged SaaS solution, for example. So we're speaking today with um, Commerce Tools is Chief Strategy Officer about their go-to-market strategy, views on the mid-market, um, including Shopify's recent announcement in that space. Core product focus and key capabilities like B2B and pricing and roadmap. So warm welcome to, to Kelly Gates, who's Chief Strategy Officer. Hi, Kelly. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, really, really looking forward to this. Been enjoying your um, start of the year updates on LinkedIn as well. Um, and I know that, so you've got an interesting background. You're co-founder of the Mac Alliance. You're also a fellow podcaster. You run your own Commerce Tomorrow podcast. So before we start grilling you with questions on commerce tools, do you want to give people a flavour who you are and and like how do you position commerce tools when people ask what it is? Sure, I actually um, started my career back with ATG um, in the early two thousands, which uh, for those who aren't aware was the leading commerce platform, and it was very much called a platform back then. And I was a professional services architect, so I launched a lot of the big ATG customers into production at that time, doing a lot of architecture deployment work. Um, I did uh, a lot of maximum availability architecture, so active-active deployments. Really loved the technology side of this business. And then my wife and I had our first child, and I couldn't be traveling every single week. Although, actually, ironically, I travel probably more now than I ever did. But <laughs> the, the irony aside, um, I thought I would get a job with uh, Oracle as a product manager and uh, uh, travel a lot less. So I spent five years at Oracle. I led some of the early cloud products there. And my last year there, I really um, I, I really took ownership of microservices, launched a big initiative there, um, thoroughly enjoyed microservices intellectually. And I thought there's somebody out there who's got to be doing commerce cloud and microservices. And by that point, I had written e-commerce in the cloud for O'Reilly. And it was just a very natural fit for me to find someone who was really innovating. And I found this small German company, which at the time had 75 employees, um, you know, very heavily weighted towards professional services, but they had at the time a fantastic product. And it's, it's obviously only gotten better since then. Uh, I joined as a chief product officer. So I was the, I still live in the U S but I was the third U S employee. Um, and at a global role, um, 
still do. But uh, anyway, I was um, part of a team that really took commerce tools into the enterprise. So I led uh, product management. I built product management, led it, um, led design, um, ops, uh, development for a little while, um, product marketing, did a lot of everything, you know, in a company of that size, uh, that's kind of what you do. You pitch in and, you know, the lot of responsibility and I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, I was in that role for six years. Um, and then, uh, this past summer, uh, we forked my role. So we have Mike Sharp now as our CPO, uh, great guy, um, really, really experienced. And I'm doing more of the external side of commerce tools, so a lot of the uh, corporate development type work, um, acquisitions, working with our investors, um, working with analysts, um, you know, going to trade shows, speaking. I do a little bit of everything, it feels like. But, uh, you know, when you're a 700 plus person company, uh, I guess you can specialize a little bit more, which is which has been fun. Great. Lovely. Well, I'll ask the first question. Um, one thing that you did say there about coming from ATG, I do find it uh, crazy how many of the kind of veterans in the e-com space have come out of that company. Um, yeah, I know a few people that are in the uh, kind of early commerce days. And um, yeah, it just feels like there's so many different people out there that came from ATG. Well, um, talent, so, talent attracts talent, really. You know, you end up yeah. with these, these, these talent hubs and it just the more smart people you bring together, it attracts more smart people and they do good things. And then you need more of those smart people. <laughs> so yes, um, ATG was very much a hub. Um, and NRF, uh, there's an ATG meetup that's done every year. That's always fun. And you get together with old ATG alums and, you know, a lot of really strong C-level execs across the industry. Um, you know, people have really gone out and done things from that. And I think it was kind of the right time to be in the space because it was so early in the enterprise commerce space. So yeah. if you were, you know, relatively senior at ATG, you could then write your own ticket and do something really interesting as cloud then became a thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on to the first question. So for the for our listeners that I guess are new to commerce tools or don't know much around kind of the proposition and go to market strategy, how does the current commerce tools go to market strategy look? Um, is it that you kind of only integrate via SI partners? Um, and how does this look or how will this change moving forward and in 2020? So we only implement through SI partners or the customers do it themselves. So of all of our 700 and something employees, we have we have three in professional services, if that says something. <laughs> um, and that's there just to provide high level architecture guidance, you know, a few pointers in the right direction. So we're, we'll support our customers, but not really do like hands-on work. That's not our business model. Our business model is very much to enable our customers and enable our partners to deliver. Um, and going back kind of to the founding story of commerce tools, because I, I do think it's relevant. Um, commerce tools was actually started as the world's first, uh, hybris systems integrator. So for those, uh, you know, not uh, in the space, hybris was bought by SAP. Um, it was kind of the dominant platform next to ATG there for a while. And the first commerce tools offices were actually in the hybris office. So it was sublet and, um, there's a lot of history between the two companies, and that was a great business. That was um, successful business from 2006, um, you know, onwards. And when Dirk started doing that, and, and team started doing that in 2006, the world changed really, really quickly in those subsequent years. 
So we had the launch of um, the iPhone in 2007, real public cloud in 2008. The public cloud gave rise to things like microservices, um, gave rise to eventing, NoSQL databases, you know, all these things that we now see as modern and default for building uh, products. Um, we also saw the rise of REST APIs. You know, REST APIs were first invented in 2000, but never really took off until the App Store and um, when iOS really started to take off. Um, we also saw the rise of social media, um, you know, for better or worse, depending on how you look at it. But social media really became a thing in those couple of years. Um, and just generally, the world changed a lot. You know, that was those were very five very pivotal years there between 2006 and 2011. In 2011, Dirk decided to um, sell off the consulting side of the business, which he did. And completely changed to product. So from 2011 to 13, built what we now know as commerce tools and took that to market and really did a hard pivot to enterprise in 2016. And we're very different from our competitors um, in a couple of key respects. First is we have a relatively narrow surface area and we go very, very deep on that functionality. So a lot of our competitors out there are they offer commerce, yes, but they also offer a CMS. They offer search and merchandising. They offer a CDP. They offer marketplace. They have an integration platform as a service. They have, you know, you name it, they, they have everything in the box. And I think that's fine if you're selling to a smaller business, you know, maybe somebody who's doing less than $25 million in, in GMV a year. I think that approach works just fine. But a lot of them are trying to sell that to enterprise. And I'm a big believer that now in the enterprise space, mock is really a thing, which stands for microservices, APIs, cloud, and headless. And there are all these great new vendors out there that do one thing and one thing really, really well. You know, so commerce tools on the commerce side, you know, we have so many great partners on the search side, you know, Algolia and Constructor. Um you know, Clevu's uh, popular as well. We have uh, on the content side, um, you know, content stack, contentful, ampliance. Um, you get what I mean. It, you know, even on on the PIM side, you know, Bluestone's doing really well these days. Um, there are so many good vendors out there that are really specialized. You know, they're two, three, four, or five hundred people, and they just do one thing really, really well. So it's really easy to mix and match. And our philosophy at Commerce Tools is we do the core commerce pieces. So product catalog, anything related to customers, pricing, promotion, checkout. We do that core bit really well, go really deep on it. And then we have best of breed partners in our ecosystem who are able to offer a complete solution to our customers. So that's one difference is just focus. You know, we're not trying to do everything. We're we're very much trying to do one thing really, really well. Another thing is um, I like to say we're commoditized. And I, a lot of people have a, an allergic reaction to the word commodity, but I think it really makes sense in this case where we are that vendor at scale offering commerce APIs as a service. And historically, commerce platforms were not commodities, right? They did a lot of battles over features and functions and RFPs. You know, they all had their own slight differentiation, but look, the major players on the market, you know, so us, uh, Salesforce, you know, all those major vendors, we've all been on the market now for north of 10 years. We all have roughly the same benchmark of features. And I would very much argue that commerce is a commodity. Um, we're also very unopinionated. 
and that separates us quite a bit. So our general philosophy is we've got some really cool APIs, but we don't really care what you do with them. In the same way that Twilio doesn't really care what you do with their APIs. You know, they're not telling you what to build or how to build it. And it's the same thing for us. We offer a great um, set of uh, developer tooling. We have um, GraphQL support, SDKs. We have uh, open documentation, open trials. And our philosophy is kind of like, we have a box of commerce tools. Go have fun with them. Do with them as you please. We're not going to tell you what head to put on. We're not going to tell you where you can call them from. You know, you kind of mix and match. So we're pretty uh, different from our competitors in some of those really key key aspects there. Attract your complete product discovery growth engine. Create relevant shopping experiences that convert into sales and grow online revenue with personalized search, merchandising, and recommendation solutions powered by AI. Find out more at attract.com. That makes sense. Um, so the next question, I guess, so a lot of people would consider, and as you say, you know, you've kind of focused the last kind of five or six years on the enterprise market. I think a lot of people would see you as an enterprise vendor um, competing against the likes of Adobe and Salesforce and, you know, some of the maybe more legacy ones you mentioned earlier. Um, the question here, so I've definitely seen, quite, so I think James and I both uh, do a lot in the mid-market space. I think we've both seen commerce tools come up a lot more over the last couple of years in that space um is that kind of i guess a big focus for you um yeah and kind of like what what's your view on kind of how you fit in the mid well yes so in a word yes we're very much focusing on that market um our ideal customer profile though is somebody who's not looking for a website in a box you know, if we find ourselves competing head to head with, say, Shopify in a deal, then one of us is probably in the wrong room because we are such fundamentally different products going after different markets, different value props, different everything. So what we're finding, and we've had a lot of success in this space, is there are mid-market organizations, which we define as, let's call it 25 million in GMV all the way up through a billion in GMV. You know, that's what we we at Commerce Tools would call mid-market, where they say, look, you know, we're outgrowing Shopify or we're outgrowing Magento. We want something that we can grow into, not grow out of. And they might have a little bit more technical sophistication. You know, maybe they already have an existing uh, PIM and search and they just want to slot us in for commerce. Um, maybe they're um, having a really good partner, for example, you know, that they can partner with. Um, that would be helpful. So there, there are quite a few good um, partners out there that um, you know that complement us in that mid market, and the barrier to adoption here is actually pretty low, right? Because we're very standards REST based APIs, easy to consume. Um, you know, for a lot of reasons, it's a it's a very enticing market for us, and we've made some pretty substantial investments in it. Something that's that's definitely been interesting um, at the start of the year is, and I, I know that you've 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 uh, noticed as a comment on it is Shopify's attempt to move into that enterprise space around the component based approach or a more composable based to commerce, and they they've announced Shopify components. Um, I'd love to know where you're where you're seeing that at the moment. Like, are is commerce tools seeing Shopify as a potential direct competitor if it evolves that approach? 
Um, are, are you seeing this as something different, or just just trying to to appeal to a different type of audience? Wait, what is this components thing? I've I've never heard of it before. <laughs> Sorry, that was a joke, guys. <laughs> Apparently, it's the future of commerce. <laughs> Component-based design. It will never catch on. Um, so look, Shopify uh, does a really good job at the low end of the market. You know, folks wanting a website in a box. Um, you know, I have a niece and she's going to start a little jewelry business. I told her to go to Shopify. You're not going to find anything better. It's great for that segment of the market. They do have some customers in the plus section, right? So you you go from Shopify to Shopify plus and you get a little bit more support. And I think for some of the, especially digitally native vertical brands, I think it's just fine, right? It works. Um, they have this new offering called Components. Um, which as far as we can tell is largely marketing, but it's very similar to what we're doing, right? I've called our our, uh, our functionality componentized for years. And the concept there is um, sell individual pieces. And the reason that folks leave Shopify Plus is because with Shopify Plus, it's a very all-in-one platform, both technically and commercially, Right, so you you can't just use them for checkout only or for PIM only or whatever those pieces are, right? And by at least from a marketing standpoint, it's the same product, but at least from a marketing standpoint, um, offering pieces helps prolong the lifespan of a Shopify Plus customer. So I get why they're doing it; it makes perfect sense. Um, it's great validation for us at Commerce Tools because we really have a good product on the market, and when it comes head to head. If it ever does, I maybe it even won't. I'm not sure. I think we'll do really well there. Um, but I, I think they need to fundamentally rewrite their platform. And I, I do call it a platform because it is a platform. They need to fundamentally rewrite that because it's still very monolithic behind the scenes. From a marketing standpoint, it's great. Um, I think they'll see some value from it, but I'm not concerned. I think it's good validation and good marketing, good free marketing for us. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so the next question, one that I wanted to get in. So I guess I've heard quite a lot of feedback on commerce tools from different people I know in the industry that are either working for brands that are integrating commerce tools or SIs and everything else. And I think, like you say, um, there's like a fundamental difference between a commerce tools uh, kind of platform versus some of the monolithic platforms. Um, and I guess one thing that always comes up is kind of what's, actually kind of within the admin and like how you can compare commerce tools to some of these monolithic platforms or even uh some of the other kind of more headless focused solutions um can you just talk us through kind of what i guess you would see as being core functionality within shopify around some of the kind of core functions um within e-commerce so like promotions catalog management order management that kind of stuff um and how you see that differing from the rest of so we do um, basically product catalog. So that's anything you would need for a product detail page, um, a category listing page. Um, we do anything related to prices, inventory, promotions, um, customer login, account management. You know, you want to update your address. You want to update your preferred shipping method. Um, and then shopping cart, anything there. And again, all these are standalone components. And then finally, checkout. So we differentiate by, again, going really, really deep on those core bits of functionality and also offering them a la carte. 
because nobody has the uh, risk appetite or budget or timeline to do a big bang replacement of whatever legacy they have. Instead, they're incrementally adopting us piece by piece over time. That makes sense. And I guess um, just uh, on some of those areas, like would you would you say that your average uh, customer would typically use a PIM, for example, or like a promotions engine? And like, is it a case of, uh, I guess, having some of that base functionality, some of which can be extended uh, via, you know, uh, kind of bespoke development work, and then you have your kind of network of best in class partners? And yeah, how does that look for the average commerce tools implementation? We have a pretty big tent, so we have our own promotion engine, for example, but we regularly partner with Talon One when ours doesn't meet the customer needs. Um, you know, we see the same thing uh, with PIM, you know, Bluestone, for example, we have a very, very large in common customer and they said, you know what, the commerce tools PIM is fine, but we need something a little bit more. And we're happy to partner with our best of breed vendors in this space. Um, you know, we have search, about half of our customers use it. It's great for specific use cases. It's not for others. And I think there's this, um, in the market, there's this, uh, there's this antiquated view of like, you know, everybody has to get every dollar of every deal, right? Where you have to just oversell whatever it is that you have. And our view at Commerce Tools is different where we are very, very close with our ISV partners who are completing our solutions. And that's, I think a key is, is, you know, we're, we're um, connected with the CMSs of the world, the searches of the world, whatever it is. And we'll go in together to solve real customer needs. And I think that's a key differentiator for us is we're very friendly. We've got a very big tent. You know, we bought Fantastic a year and a half ago for our front end as a service. Um, but we partner very, very closely with View Storefront because for whatever reason, people, you know, some people aren't able to use um, Frontastic, which is now known as Commerce Tools front end, and that's fine, right? Not not every product is for every company, um, and when that is the case, we have very good friends and partners over at View, and we'll bring them in. So we really want to solve customer problems through Mock, and that's what we do. A question that has come up from a few few um, e-commerce things I've worked with when they've been trying to understand how, like, yeah, Commerce Tools compares to a big commerce or Shopify where their app stores is. You know, you have an integrations marketplace and there seems to be a lot of activity in building that out. How do the connectors work? If somebody is using commerce tools and then you've got an integration in your marketplace for APIM, does that mean it's it's pre-integrated and those um, API connections are already established and they just need to turn on that connection? Or is there also additional like development work, customization work that people need to factor in when they're turning on these connectors? Um. So it's a different orientation in commerce tools world than historically. So if you look at the Adobe world, for example, or Hybris world, those platforms, and I call them platforms, um, were the center of the universe. And to get from the front end to, say, your PIM, you had to go through the platform. And the platform then had very, very tight integrations back to the PIM or back to the search or whatever that thing happened to be in the back end. So as a result, you had these, these very um, tightly coupled solutions, but the platform is mediating the connection to the back, the third party product. In commerce tools world, we are instead building a catalog of APIs. And some of those APIs come from us. 
Some of them come from third parties. Some of them our customers build themselves or through an SI. But basically, they're building and buying their their way to a catalog of APIs. And in that model, we're exchanging data with our partners primarily through events. So we and other mock vendors, instead of us calling search, for example, to update it with a new product, we will throw that as an event to the queue of the customer's choice, whether it's Google PubSub, uh, it could be SNS, SQS, it could be EventBridge, whatever, right? We'll throw the event there, and then the search product that they choose subscribes to the event from there. So instead of us meeting the connection, instead, we're throwing data to a common event bridge a bus, and then the relevant systems are pulling the data off of that. So that's how you integrate with order management systems, for example. We capture the order, we'll throw it to the queue, and then the OMS uh, and any other system that needs order data is subscribing to it. And when you have a subscription-based system like that, it's a much less brittle approach because now instead of you know us being the center, and if something happens, the whole thing breaks, now we're publishing events, and then you can set up very complex workflows using the cloud of your choice. And it's a much more resilient event-based architecture. But to directly answer your question, we actually do have integrations with all of our major partners for sure. Um, and that's a largely event-based, but it's some direct point-to-point. -point. I mean, they're again, we're very much an ecosystem play. We're not just a, you know, we're not everything in a box. So we have to have these and we do a very good job with them. I'd be interested to, to to see what you're what you're finding in terms of trending technology because I just face it the the ecom and martech universe is huge thousands of different you referenced earlier how many different um, platforms technologies are out there from your your marketplace and the projects you work at what are the most popular like third party tools that people are plugging in and using alongside commerce tools to deliver their enterprise e-commerce vision um, are you able to like share some of the most the most commonly used ones, whether that's ERPs, PIMs. Like specific names or just the categories? Yeah, it'd be interesting to pick out a couple of categories and some of the most popular chosen vendors within that space. It'd be very interesting to know what's what's being used the most in your ecosystem. So people are buying some combination of commerce, search, and content. Usually they'll start with commerce and then bring in search and then content. On occasion, we see it the opposite. You know, they'll start with content and work their way backwards. But typically those three are purchased within a 12-month time period and implemented pretty successively. Um, and they're typically buying all of these um, in alignment, right? So it's rare to see like an old school CMS up front, but then have us in the back end. Right. Instead, people are buying, you know, us and mock-based search and mock-based CMS. Um, in terms of partners, again, this this is hard because we have really good partners across our entire ecosystem. And anytime I name specific partners, I get uh, angry emails, probably rightfully angry emails from people I didn't name. Um, but on the content side, um, we see a lot of content stack. Um Contentful, Ampliance, um, Bloomreach, we see a lot of um, a lot of legacy Adobe Experience Manager, surprisingly. Um, we see HiGraph a little bit. Um, 
But that's kind of the cool thing in the space is, you know, anybody can go out there and start a CMS these days because cloud enables that. Um, on the search side, um, we see Constructor, Algolia, um, a little bit of Bloomreach there as well. Um, you know, Tract we see. Who else do we see? A little bit of Lucidworks. Um, it's a pretty long tail there in the search side. Again, it, you know, the barrier to entry is relatively low. On the PIM side, we see um, Bluestone, Akinio. You know, those are popular. Um, on the ERP side, um, we do have a modern uh, ERP in our mock alliance, and I should remember their name. But, you know, folks typically aren't buying commerce and ERP together. Um, you know, instead they're buying one or the other. Um, yeah, I can't find the name. Yeah, having worked on two projects where people were putting in ERP and e-commerce new systems at the same time, I can strongly advise people to not do. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good idea. Um, we also have, um, on occasion, people will go third party for promotions. Usually it's Talon 1, sometimes Voucherify, but Talon 1 has a pretty strong monopoly right now in the market. Um yeah, those are the major buckets at this point. We also see some other categories, like we have dams um, that people buy. But a lot of people get the uh, um, Ampliance dam as well. Um, what else? Apollo for all the GraphQL tooling is super popular. You see a lot of that. Netlify, you know, for, for upfront, front-end type of uh, work, we see a lot of Netlify out there. Vercel as well. Again, I, it, it's hard because we have so many good partners, and I I don't want to um, <laughs> end by missing out on naming somebody specifically. But we're a big tent. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, so the next question, I think, in the market, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I would say there's like there's a bit of a preconception that if you're looking at you know doing a composable project with the likes of commerce tools and you know other kind of mac orientated um solutions um you need a cto or you know at the very least a very senior kind of engineering head and potentially then a team of engineers um regardless of whether you have an si alongside that kind of in-house capability um what's your view on this I would agree with that. I think you need somebody, you know, it could be an architect, it could be a CTO, a CDO, a CIO, somebody who has an understanding of what fits where, somebody who has the rough outlines of, you know, what mock is and how it works. I think there needs to be some technical competency. The barrier to adopting this is much lower. You know, when we really started seeing some market traction in 2017, 2018, you know, at that point, you did have to be more technical, right? Like it was a reasonably technical product at that point. But now with the proliferation of APIs and mock-based technologies, um, random people, like I shouldn't say random, but like normal business users, people, you know, who make decisions, you know, CFOs, they understand what APIs are. They get this. You know, in my first couple of years at Commerce Tools, I'd hear from prospects of ours and they'd say, you know, why does it have to be cloud-based, right? We don't want multi-tenant SaaS. We want to have this in our four walls in our own data center. I haven't heard that in years now, right? They would say, why isn't your product complete? Because it doesn't have an OMS and it doesn't have a CMS. 
And I would, I would very politely say, well, you're kind of missing the point, <laughs> right? This is all we do. It's like asking Twilio why they're incomplete for not offering a uh, GraphQL library, right? <laughs> it's a different philosophy. So the market has moved pretty quickly in our direction, which is great to see. And as a result, the barrier to adoption is lower. I do think you need someone who can at least put the pieces together, um, or you need a good partner who can put the pieces together. But I don't think, um, you know, you're if you're just wanting a website in a box, we are not that. We are really a solution for innovators. Somebody needs to be slightly technical to understand what goes where and how it all fits together. That makes sense. I think that was my view as well. So someone with like a technical or a technology vision, essentially, or yeah, a kind of yeah, that makes sense. Um, so uh, coming back to the product, how big a focus is B two B for commerce tools um, in twenty twenty three, and has that changed over the last few years? We've historically sold a lot of B two B out there, which is which is good. It's a healthy market for us. We've really doubled down from a product standpoint, and we're really there feature compatibility wise with the major top two or top three B two B platforms on the market. So now we are very confident in in winning these, and we're starting to see some really big deals come our way in the B two B space. Although again, we've sold lots of B two B to billion plus dollar GMV customers for years now. But um, it is a big area. You'll see a lot more marketing, thought leadership from us on this. And if you just look at you know, total addressable market, B2B is way bigger than B2C is. And we've already really dominated the B2C space. And B2B is different, but it's not that different, if that makes sense. right? It's a market that is um, something that we can really come in and clean up because we already have the product for it. And now with these additional features, we're even more easily able to compete that makes sense um and just just kind of expanded on that a little bit would you be able to just talk us through kind of what your native b2b offering looks like and kind of maybe how this side is kind of built into the apis and i'm sure that's kind of pretty standard for you guys um and then also how you handle things like quoting or cpq or like multi-tiered accounts all of the standard kind of b2b stuff yeah, we're a bit different from our competitors in that we have a catalog of APIs, a single catalog, and you can use it in a B2C or B2B flavor you pick. And a lot of our customers are B2C with a flavor of B2B or they're B2B but act like B2C. You know, there isn't this this hard split in the market. And a lot of our competitors have two separate products in their portfolio. And I think that's hard because Again, it's 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 not a very firm your B2C or B2B. It's it's usually some flavor of those things. Um so again, we've long supported, you know, all of the the standard features. Um we now have some pretty advanced features around workflows, for example, um, around um you know, supplier-specific pricing, inventory promotions, being able to much more easily scope those objects to a given buyer. So we support that really well. Um you know, quoting is something we've supported for a long time, but made even better now. We've added some B2B specific discount um, approaches. What else have we done? Um, honestly, a lot of it is just how we talk, right? We've talked B2C only as commerce tools to our own detriment. And we've had B2B organizations come to us and say, hey, we see you basically support everything we need. 
can we use you for B2B? And now we can confidently say yes, and that we've closed those feature gaps. We do not do CPQ. Um, we have some great partners there. Um, like uh, Logic IO is one, for example, that we work with uh, pretty closely. They're mock-based. Um, but that's CPQ is a great example of where if you've got a five or 10 person team working for a commerce vendor, they're never going to be able to have a CPQ that matches a standalone vendor that has 250 people who only do CPQ all day. And I guess a question that links into this quite nicely, because we've talked about lots of different capabilities, functionalities, you know, what, what's in the, the tent you talk about in terms of like product catalog and the core commerce extending out to B2B, how, because you work differently to like a standard license-based SaaS button, how does pricing work? Because this always comes up in every conversation I have with any any new prospective client about the types of platform that suit them. The first thing the finance person wants to know is, but how, what am I paying for? How do I pay for it? How does it change? So how how do how does the pricing work on a, on a I know you've got lots of different project sizes, um, is it license based? Could you could you share a bit of um, clarification for people? Sure, it's a function of two things. So the first is the number of orders that you place per year, and then average order value. So if you're selling new cars for you know seventy thousand dollars a year, right? The price per order is going to be higher than if you're selling donuts for fifty cents a piece, right? So there's that scale. And then there's the number of orders that you're placing per year. And again, if you're a B2B manufacturer and you're selling you know, a giant piece of farm equipment and you're selling one of those per day, you're going to have relatively few orders um, compared to if you're you know, a, a much larger mass merchant retailer, for example. So it's a function of those two things. And we do that because we don't want GMV-based pricing. And I think it's a little amateurish to be honest with you and our customers don't want gmv pricing you know they've very clearly said that they don't like that model um and then what we also didn't want to do was a strict api call based model because when you only do it based on api calls it's hard to weight the value of different apis you know if you're just retrieving a product from the cache that's very different from placing a very large order api call right? They're different. And what we didn't want was for folks to have to think that they need to architect their platform to minimize API calls. We don't want them doing unnatural things to avoid API calls. So we have it set up as a function of the number of orders and average order value. And that's proven to be quite a fair approach for both sides. And it captures the value that we offer. Um, we're quite reasonably priced. Um, you know, usually our customers are paying a third, roughly, of what they would be paying their legacy vendor in just maintenance cost. And um, yeah, it's proven to work really well. Cool. Excellent. Um, and if anybody wants to reach out and if they want to like challenge you on anything or probe deeper or talk about a um, an issue to see whether or how commerce tools could help solve it, how do they reach out? Um, you can reach out on LinkedIn. Um, that's where I hang out on occasion. I've been known to be, <laughs> um, Twitter I'm on, but, um, I use it in spurts. I have such a love hate relationship with it. Um, but I, I think a lot LinkedIn more people is- have it ever since the glorious Musk took over as well. <laughs> it's been, it's become more Marmite. 
It is, um, you know, LinkedIn, I, I find people actually have real discussions. Yeah. And because it is tied to your real name, I think people are more um, having good faith arguments and they're polite. And what I find on Twitter is that there are people who just take shots at you behind anonymous accounts and they're performing for their audience as opposed to really trying to learn. So it's hard to have substantive discussions on LinkedIn or on Twitter because of the format. LinkedIn is better. It's tied to their professional accounts. People generally try not to look too stupid. You know, people will engage in good faith arguments and, um, I find it's better, but yeah, I've look, I have a, a lot of good, good discussions with folks. I love for people to follow and, uh, follow commerce tools, um, follow myself, um, and engage with us. You know, we we're very much a, uh, a developer first company. We like, uh, talking with folks out there. We do a lot of, uh, public thought leadership, you know, things like this podcast, which thanks again for the invite, you know, we do all, all of that and, uh, are very responsive as a company. You know, we're not a big global behemoth where, uh, you know, everything has to be run by our PR department. Uh, you know, anytime somebody comments on LinkedIn, well, not cool. yet at least. <laughs> there we go. It's an open season for sending t- challenging questions to Kelly on LinkedIn. Uh, look, appreciate <laughs> Kelly. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and, and thanks to everyone as always for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it too. Uh, if you've got any follow-up questions, uh, feel free to reach out to Kelly or myself and Paul on LinkedIn. Keep your ears open for the next episode. We drop it every Tuesday. And do subscribe if you haven't already. And please don't forget to give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, wherever you're listening. Thanks very much and take care, everybody. Thanks for having me. Take care. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.